Out of Our Minds is brought to you by New Geneva Academy. Check us out at newgenevaacademy.com. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Pastor Tim Bailey and Pastor and Professor Jürgen von Hagen. They'll begin with introductions and move into a conversation about refugees, immigration, and matters that concern both the state and the church. Thanks for listening. Today, my guest is the, how do you say it, the Reverend Doctor Professor? Reverend Professor Doctor. Reverend Professor Doctor. The Reverend Professor Doctor Herr Jürgen von von Hagen. Now, you say it the way you say it. Well, if you want to include Herr, which is Mr., you would put that first. Herr, Reverend, it, uh, Professor, Dr. Jürgen Lomphagen. Is it ever appropriate to put that in front of the rest of the titles? Yes. In what situation would that be appropriate? When my students talk to me, they say Herr Professor. Do they really? That's interesting. Mr. Professor. Huh. When uh, the people in the church talk to me, they say Herr Pastor, which mm. is... Mr. Reverend. Hmm. You know, one of the irritating things in the United States is that people don't understand how to use the title Reverend. And you're always referred to by people as Reverend Bailey, but it is improper to ever use the title Reverend in front of the last name. It requires the first and last. And so it's appropriate to say Reverend Tim Bailey or Reverend Jürgen von Hagen. It's never appropriate to say Reverend Bailey. And uh, if you want to refer to a pastor in the proper way, you say Pastor Bailey or Mr. Bailey. If it's your children, he's not your pastor. But it's uh, if you want to address him formally, it's Reverend Tim Bailey. Jürgen, how long have we been friends? Oh, probably for... About 20 years, I'd yeah. say. We, we've known each other actually for about 25 years, I'd say. And why are we friends? Can you explain that to the listeners? Because we realized very early on, I think, that uh, we both like to argue about things in interesting ways. <laughs> and so we like to spend time up here in Michigan and argue th- through things um and learn in the course but, of but the discussion. anybody listening is going to hear that we argue and they're going to think that I pull your teeth out and you punch me in the nose. Oh, sometimes I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean good argument is not violent argument. You know, I think what people would think when we say argument and this can't this bears repeating over and over again is that we're quarreling. What is the difference between arguing and quarreling? Quarreling would be first angry, and secondly, the whole point is that I'm right and mm-hmm. you're wrong. Mm-hmm. In an argument, it doesn't matter who is right and who is wrong. The whole point is that we learn something. We and, both learn. And uh, at the end, we're wiser than we were before. 
Yeah, I, a number of years ago, I listened to Boswell's Life of Johnson, Samuel Johnson. If you've never listened to it or read it, you should. And when I got done, and I, I think it was 45 hours of listening on audible.com, when I got done, I realized that that biography is the chronicling of endless judgments made by men as they sit and talk to each other, which is what arguing is. You know, they're making judgments about character, about just everything that comes up in the discussion. And so you and I have been friends. And so we, for how many years now, have we been coming up here? Probably eight or nine. Yeah. So we come up here to, um, what do I call this? A compound of three homes that my wife and her nine siblings, eight now, own. And uh, left to them by their uh, godly parents, Ken and Margaret Taylor. We come up here and we spend usually a day or two over a week. I pick you up at O'Hare sometimes. Sometimes you fly into Indy. And we come up here and we get up in the morning. I generally don't want to talk in the morning. Um, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we write. And this is where both of us have worked on books Um probably much of the writing that I have done, almost all of it has been up here. It has never been done in Bloomington because I can't separate myself from pastoral needs when I'm in Bloomington. But anyhow, um, we talk about what we're reading, what we're writing. You give me books to read. You have uh, had a, a very important effect on my reading priorities of the last 10 years. Um, and then in the evening, you cook, Right? And what do you cook? Veggies and meat. And salad. And salad. Now tell them how big that salad was that you made last night. Last night was a good-sized bowl for each of us. Yeah, but not a bowl. I mean, a salad bowl for each of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was humongous. Well... Our listeners should know that we didn't have lunch, so we were hungry. And we deserved <laughs> we a good Yeah, we salad. haven't had lunch again today, yeah. And uh, you like meat in America, and you always put what in your meat? I like to put garlic. Yeah, so you and, cut up cloves of garlic and, and you shove peppers. them. Yeah, and yeah. peppers in the meat, yeah. Um, and then when we get done eating, what do we do? have arguments we talk we talk and talk and talk and talk and talk where are you in germany i teach at the university of bonn where i'm currently dean of the school of law and economics and then my church is in mülheim which is a little north of bonn and most of our listeners would know Mülheim. How do you say it? Mülheim. Mülheim. Most of our listeners would know Mülheim. How? Tell them. Oh, because of the Aldi brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell them a little bit about the Aldi brothers, because that's a very interesting thing. Well, they are among the richest people in Germany, and I think among the richest people in the world, and they live a very quiet life. They almost never appear in public. Hmm. Um, so that's one thing about Mülheim. It's also a city that has seen a lot of revivals over the past 
100 years mm. or 150 years let's say um the uh, the german pentecostal movement started in mülheim and a number of independent churches started there so tell us a little bit about your church is it in the state lutheran church no, we are in a, a denomination called Free Evangelical Churches of Germany. Mm -hmm. It's uh, strictly congregationalist. In other words, we're pretty independent in terms of doctrine and uh, church practice. The one thing that makes our church uh, special is that since 2015, we've had an increasing and now a large number of church members who come from Africa. So out of uh, about 80 church members, I'd say right now probably 65 uh, Africans. And so the rest of them are Germans, old, young? Well, some of them actually come from Africa, but by now... They are Germans. They hmm. have taken on uh, a German nationality. Um, but the 15, they would be mostly uh, elderly German people, mm -hmm. white German people. Mm -hmm. Although my recollection is that there was a daughter of one of them that was there with her children. That may be every once in a while somebody comes yeah, in to she, visit. She wasn't yeah. there regularly, but I remember her being there in the back. Yes. A and yeah. I should add, for those that haven't caught on, Aldi is the owner of Aldi's in the U.S. And uh, an interesting story about these two brothers is their mother started a grocery store, a store, a corner grocery, and she, um, <clears throat> they took over that store. And they were together for a while. And my understanding is this year they're trying to put their two companies, which are Aldi North and Aldi South, they're trying to put them together. Aldi South, if I'm not mistaken, owns, what is the store? A big chain of stores in the U.S. that they own. I can't remember the name right now. But they separated because they disagreed over whether to sell cigarettes. Now, any of you that know my background in Wheaton and Wheaton's pledges and college churches' pledges to be members included that you couldn't smoke. And so you would think that they must have been godly men and had religious moral reasons. But actually, that's not the reason they divided. They divided because one of the brothers was convinced that selling cigarettes would cause them to bring shoplifters into their store. And the other one disagreed. He thought they'd make more profit by selling cigarettes. <laughs> and so that's the basis of their division going back probably 19, a long, 50, long time. Yeah, yeah, 60, 40. Yeah. Now, um, I think uh, it, it, a couple other things would be good for people to get a sense of who you are and also our friendship, our brotherhood. Would you tell them about the issue of um, your... Uh, your commitments to refugees, because the the people that listen to us are probably most of them very opposed to the open borders, uh, which I'm opposed to also. I mean, it's a, it's a huge issue in public policy right now. And so most people who would be listening to us probably think 
that refugees are awful for Europe because it's throwing out Christendom and filling it with kebab stands and, mm. and Muslims. And so I think it's important for people to understand why is it that you have been such a strong advocate? Is it just simply pastoral or do you have a public policy conviction? Well, it's actually both, I would say. So um, a little history. We, we had a couple of African families already in the church before 2015. And uh, the husband and father of one of the families is now actually an elder of the church. In 2015, we had this huge wave of refugees uh, coming to Europe by way of the Balkans, all uh, marching on foot. And uh, they went through Hungary. Hungary let them pass. They went into Austria. And um, the Austrians turned to the German government and asked for help. And at that point, uh, the German government said um, they are allowed to come into Germany. Now, in terms of numbers, we took in about a million, 1.2 million people into the country within a matter of six, seven months. And how large is Germany? That would have been more than a tenth of the Austrian population, probably 12 or 13 percent. And Germany itself. And uh, for Germany, Germany has about 82, 83 million mm -hmm. people. So just the sheer challenge of housing these people and getting them registered and all that was much more doable for the German government than for the Austrian government. Now, having said that, there was a lot of hostility in the German population against the refugees. I've always defended the German, what the German government did in, in 2015 on the argument that the alternative would have been to kill them all, right? To take machine guns and mow them down because they were on their march towards the country. And that would have been... So in other words, defending the border with weapons. Yeah, that would have been the only way of doing it. Now, then in 2015, the government... Which, of course, is what Saudi Arabia is just accused of doing. Yeah. There are other countries, too. Mm -hmm. um, in 2015... Then the government put up a refugee camp very close to where our church is. And uh, at that time, we were a very old and small church, probably about 20 active people, maybe less even. And, and I said to them one morning, uh, we have work to do. There are all these people here. We need to do something. And the old ladies in the church all smiled at me and said, Pastor, what do you think we can do? And I said, you guys, all you have to do is bake cakes and be friendly. Mm. And, um, and then together with the two African families that we already had, we went there, we met people. The camp was full of Africans and uh, uh, people from Arab countries, Iraq, Iran, um, 
And uh, of course, being there with African families, we immediately attracted African families. And, and so that's how the church began to grow again. <laughs> and we have mostly people from Nigeria, um, Cameroon, and Ghana. And if you ask me, I think it's God's way of bringing Christianity back to Germany, not driving it out of Germany. Hmm. So um, from the beginning, we took care of these people. We helped them with bureaucracies and stuff like that. Always under the rule that you can't do anything illegal. If you do, then we're out of the game. And I think that has worked very, very well. Most of them have stable jobs now. I know most of the employers, and the employers are very pleased and say they are hard workers, they are reliable, they are good workers, and so it's a win for the country. I don't want to bring this up, yeah. but I know that in our private conversations we have talked about the heritage of the Third Reich being part of your sense of the scandal of Germany refusing refugees. Would you open that up a little bit, please? Well, yes. In um, During the Nazi government, um, Jews were still allowed to leave the country, and other nations were unwilling to accept them, which is why so many of them ended up going to Palestine. Um, and I think we have a, a moral duty now that people come to us um, and need help, um, that um, we help them. Now, of course, a counter-argument that people always bring is these people do not come to Europe or to Germany because there is persecution in their own countries. They come because they want economic advantages, which in my mind is just another way of saying they want to fill their stomachs. And yes, that's a big motivation. And it's a good motivation, after all. They You're have, an economist. <laughs> they have families, and mm -hmm. they have lots of children. As I said, we have about 80 members now in the church. On a Sunday when we bless the children for school or similar things, we typically have over 40 children in the room. So that tells you something mm -hmm. about friendliness to children. Now, I know this conversation, this part of the conversation will be irritating to some. Uh, and I know what American conservative reform Christians would say is that we cannot endorse breaking of our immigration laws. And it is true that present, presently under President Biden, uh, it is... It is absolutely scandalous at the almost, and of course, you know, there's absolutely no attempt to enforce any laws. And if there are like, you know, Texas with the Rio Grande, you know, then the federal government files a lawsuit against them. I bring that up because I don't think it's fair for anybody to simply say, well, our situation is different. Um... I've often said to people that the United States 
for decades, we have known who does all the landscaping work in California. We've known who works at the Chinese and, and Mexican restaurants. We've known who our maids are. And so there really does need to be a reclaiming of the Old Testament doctrine of, you know, you yourselves were once sojourners. God is repeatedly commanding us to care for this, those who sojourn in our midst. And so I just want to say that because it always gets people angry at me for saying that, including my congregation when I would say it in sermons. But I think we have to realize that our commitment to Jesus Christ and to compassion and to serving others really does, if I may use the word, trump our commitment to nationalism or to uh, border policies. I'm not saying throw out the laws. Do you have any response to that? Because you know the situation in the U.S. Do you have anything to say to people about that who are conservative and think that there should be maybe a hardline position against refugees in the U.S.? Yeah, I want to say two things. Uh, number one, for Germany, like for the United States for a long, long time, um, there is a necessity of immigration. And for Germany, it becomes very acute now we have a very acute shortage um, of uh, people in the workforce. Businesses are closing down because they, they mm. can't find workers to work for them. And, um, and so the irony of the situation is that we should actually be happy for people who come to Germany and are willing to work. Mm. And so, uh, you know, you, you mentioned people mowing the lawn. Um, that's very similar in Germany. We still officially have this illusion that what we really need is people who have good education and, uh, and skills. But if you talk to, like, construction companies, they will tell you we can't even find a man who takes a pick and a shovel and works. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing, of course, migration is not new. There has always been migration, and as an economist, the way I look at it is uh, there has always been migration from poor regions to rich regions. And um, you you can't really stop it. So... If you're in a situation where the um, the differences in economic welfare are so large as they are between the United States and uh, Mexico and south of it, or between Germany and other European countries and African countries, that generates a flow of people which is unstoppable. And so the right reaction is not to just forget about the law and not enforce it. The right reaction is to change the law and to find ways to let people immigrate legally and then um, get them into the workforce and allow them to care for themselves, which is exactly what they want to do. I've thought a lot about this in seminary when I worked for an extremely wealthy couple in Manchester by the sea, uh, the town that the movie is set in. And my understanding is that their mansion was out on a little point 
uh, into the ocean. It's the only place in the country, my understanding, is where the U.S. Postal Service actually goes into a private place and delivers house to house. But anyhow, that gives you an idea of the wealth. The guy that lived next door to us was a guy that had invented floppy disks. Hmm. And another man on the other side of us uh, owned Yachting Magazine and Ink Magazine. And so it was, and this man was many generations into wealth. He was old money, okay? And his wife was the head of the aquarium. She was on the board of uh, Georgetown University. He has a hospital name for him in Boston. It's called Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital. His name was Josiah Spalding. One day I was working out in the yard. I was their sort of chauffeur, uh, gardener, everything the three years I was in seminary. One day I was out in the yard digging up a place of a patch of grass. It was a very hot day, and it was a patch of grass that was just inches above a large outcropping of rock, and so it had died because it it didn't have enough soil and it couldn't retain its moisture. So I was putting down more soil and trying to, to replant it. And it was an unusual day. Mr. Spalding came home that day, he saw me out in the yard, and he came out and started working with me, and we began to talk. And he was describing to me uh, his concern about a recent situation where there had been a child who had been born, if I recollect correctly, the child had been blind. And he was talking about what a tragedy it, it was that this child had been born blind, and I should say this about Cy. That's what people called him. I didn't call him that, Cy Spalding. He was, um, he was Republican. He ran against Teddy Kennedy after Chappaquiddick and only lost by a couple percentage points. And everybody attributed it to the fact that he'd come out in favor of gun control, which mm. split the difference between the Republicans and Democrats. I have his folder from that campaign. He, that day was talking to me and he had children who were not shall we say thriving financially uh you could see constantly with him his concern that his descendants have the privileges that he and his wife had and he felt that you know he was not going to be able to keep them going at the same level that he had you know they had a place in hope sound they had an island up in maine they had an apartment in boston apartment in new york so we're talking, and he brings up this child that had been born blind. And then he turns to me, and he says, Tim, that's why we need abortion. So he was talking about it. Hmm. And then he began to talk about immigration. And I, that day, had a realization, which is this was exactly Pharaoh and the Hebrews in Egypt, that this man saw that he had some compassion and he saw the teeming hordes of poverty around the world and he constantly felt that threat to his nation and but really to his own familial wealth and i've never forgotten that because i think what we have to realize is that our nation has for many decades the rockefeller foundation other people have seen the poor of the world as a threat and I think that we have to be very careful when, when you say that migration has always been a fact, that we realize that 
it's not unbiblical. It's not sin for the poor people to want to go somewhere where they can earn a living wage. And that the solution is not abortion. That's not why we need abortion, actually. That's not why we need birth control. Do you have any response to that? <laughs> well, the only response I have is that even in the Bible, we read about migration. I mean, starting with Father Abraham, who migrated to the Promised Land. And, and then the Israelites, who migrated from Egypt back to the Promised Land. You meet all these people with strange names in the book of Acts um, who come from Crete and from uh, Rhodes. And these are people who migrated. And it just tells us that has always been a fact throughout human history. And it's interesting, one of the, thing, one of the ways to look at that is um, economic historians have... Um, done research on fi finding out income levels 2,000 years ago. It goes about back to the time of Jesus. And they do that for regions all over the world. And the, the fascinating thing is that in those times, until about the, I'd say, 17th century, regional income differences were teeny tiny small. It didn't really matter whether you were born in North America or in Europe or in Turkey or in China, your economic prospects would always be the same. Now, why is that? Because if a region prospered, then people from other regions would come and the average income would go down in the process. And, and so that's just a historical fact showing that uh, migration is part of the human race. So reading those books that you have recommended to me recently, one of the things that comes through them, intellectual histories and history of political economy and economics, one of the things that comes through to me is that they, um, that much of the, well, let me put it like this, much of the post-millennialism of the last couple of centuries, you know, Jonathan Edwards and on has come out of the fact that you that you had a continent that was open for expanse. And at the same time, you had an incredible development of um, the ability of using capital and creating things. And then you had the trains. And so America has been able to say, give me your poor, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, for, many, many years without people feeling, even though they would be adversarial against the Poles, against the Italians and stuff, but it was more sort of just anti-Catholicism and stuff like that than it was a feeling on the part of people that work with their hands that these people are displacing their ability to make an income. And so... I think what has happened in the last few decades is that a lot of the lower jobs in America have been outsourced. And what we've ended up with is a lot of people who say, for instance, have not gone to college or uni. Um, they feel that the people coming in now are a direct threat to their ability to provide for their families. We have gone through a number of decades now where 
global trade has been liberalized. The tariff barriers have been um, abolished or much reduced. And um, when that happens, jobs can migrate somewhere else um, where wages are lower than uh, where the jobs previously were. That's part of the beauty of international trade is that instead of moving people, you move jobs and economic activities so the people can actually stay where they are. Now, another way to say that, especially for Europe and um, and Africa, Europe is extremely protectionist when it comes to, to countries that are not part of the European Union. And so it, that would be another thing or another solution that Europe could try in order to stem the wave of uh, refugees, which we still have, and and the large numbers of people who die in the Mediterranean every year trying to get to Europe, just uh, allowing African nations to trade freely with um, the European Union, which currently we don't. And, of course, the link to what happened in this country is... Um, since the 1980s, uh, trade with Asian countries and with Mexico was uh, liberalized greatly. And one of the results was jobs moving to those uh, regions. Yes, which I think a lot of Americans realized first during COVID, when they realized that medicines, that masks, that a number of things that we needed were now going to be subject to President Trump's move towards, I don't know if you want to call it protectionism, but. Well, you know, Americans have realized that much earlier, I think, simply by the fact that a lot of things in this country became cheaper than they used to be because they, they now come from Asia rather than uh, from American manufacturers. We have long talked about the decline of American manufacturing and its move to other countries, just like we now talk about the decline of German manufacturing mm -hmm. and its move to other countries. And from the point of view of the consumer, it's great. From the point of view of low-skilled workers, it's, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is free trade pits a low-skilled American worker mm -hmm. into competition against low-skilled Asian workers. And um, the U.S. government for a long time has chosen to just ignore that. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely a, a, um, a political mistake. What you can do about it is, at least to some extent, make sure that people have the opportunity to to gain new skills and then move to better jobs. It's interesting that we're having this conversation without people having any idea if you're qualified to talk about this. So would you please tell them what your area of economics is and your involvement with the EU and the Euro and 
sovereign nation and solvency because that's probably the most important thing that unbelievers know about you. Well, yeah, I studied economics, and uh, my area is mostly um, macroeconomics, which is the part of economics that looks at nations as a whole or economies as a whole rather than looking at individual markets or or individual firms. Um, For a long time, I worked on issues of monetary policy, exchange rates, and the like. And then in the preparation of the EU for the introduction of the, uh, the common currency, it became clear to me that a common currency is actually not so much about monetary policy as it is about uh, fiscal policy government expenditures and taxation and government debt. And so that became my main area in the, let's say, second half of the 90s and during the 2000s. I did a lot of work on government debt, government uh, uh, solvency. Um, I worked for the, um, the Portuguese... Council of um, um, Fiscal Policy for a number of years, which is a council that oversees the government and the parliament uh, when it comes to government expenditures and taxation. So um, that has been my area. What was your actual position there in Portugal? Like I said, I was vice chairman of this uh, national council. That's not what you said. What you said is you work for them. Well, I worked on that council, not for that council. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. And you also have spoken at Davao's twice, which is all you can speak at it. Tell them what Davao's is or Davao's. Davos. Davos. Davos is the World Economic Summit, which meets once a year in this beautiful little town in the Swiss Alps, where um, a few hundred um, leaders of companies, banks, and politicians um, gather together to discuss whatever is on their minds. And um, Davos always invites, as I call it, a few monkeys for entertainment. (laughs) And I was one of the monkeys. I talked to them about, uh, at the time, (laughs) about the introduction of the euro. Stop scratching your armpits, Jürgen. (laughs) But there were... There were other monkeys as as well. <laughs> I I remember in 1999 when I was there, 99 or 2000, I had dinner with the um, the head of the National Institutes uh, of Health, and he was explaining what they at the time did about cancer research, and it was just fascinating, mm-hmm. and. Everything he told me came true in the next 20 years, so that Mm -hmm. makes it even more fascinating. But 
Like I said, um, you go there as a monkey, you can go there three times in your life, and I did, and uh, so that's past. Mm. I only mention that because I'm proud of you. Mm. And you're my friend, so I'm important. I mean, can we agree on that? <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I mention it because we're talking about global economics, macroeconomics, and I think people need to understand that you know, you're you're hugely published. You, um, there is some authority behind what you say. Not that you're an expert, but rather that you're not ignorant. Would uh, you cop to that? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, next, um, I want to finish the story about Cy Spalding. When he said that's why we need abortion, I want to say that my response, and I was young, I was 29 at the time. I had a child and a wife. And I looked at him, and I liked him, and he liked me. And I said to him, Mr. Spalding, the reason that you say that is that you are not a Christian. And it was like I had slapped him across the face. He said, What? You're telling me I'm not a Christian? Hmm. And I was shocked that he would not cop to that. I was, I mean, everything about his life, the way he lived, you know, I never thought that he would be defensive. I knew back in, you know, I knew in the Midwest that people could be shocked and angry, but I didn't think he would be. And I said, well, Mr. Spalding, you, you've just said that we need abortion. And I said, no Christian would ever say that. Christians say that God is the one that makes the eyes that see and the eyes that are blind, the ears that hear and the ears that don't. And so we don't kill people because they're blind. And he was so insulted. And I tried to backpedal and tell him I wasn't trying to insult him. I was just trying to make what I thought was an objective observation, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The reason I tell that story is that it should encourage all of us to live as Christians, even if it gets us in hot water, because the sad thing was that really from that point on, if I was coming to work and he was leaving for Boston, he'd see me down at the carriage house, and as he would walk to his car, he would say to me, Tim, I'm not a Christian. That's not a nice thing to say to a man. And then he'd get in his car and drove away, and that happened multiple times. And then not long after that, he had massive coronary down in Puerto Rico, and he died. And I just look back on that, and I'm so glad that I said that to him because he knew that I really liked him. I would say I loved him and his wife. Um, he knew there was no malice in it. And I want to bring that up so that all of us as Christians realize that when we talk about immigration, we talk about abortion, we talk about fertility, we talk about migration. We're not talking as politicians. We're not talking as partisans of a particular party. But we are representing Christ by what we say. And we have to remember that. And you know, I didn't have any intention of representing Christ when I said that, you know. I was just trying to, like, have a discussion, a conversation with him. But the minute he made the implications of what I was saying clear to me, and it should have been clear to me, I don't know what I was thinking, I have always remembered then that 
to the rich, the poor are always a threat. Now, you don't want to say anything about that. You're, you want to say as an economist, well, that shouldn't be the case. You want to talk about Adam Smith and the invisible hand and free free trade. and <laughs> Well, naturally, the poor are a threat to the rich simply because there are more of them. Yeah. yeah you know. Yeah. And I would suggest that most rich people are greedy maybe even more greedy than the poor. And so what they want to do is they want to defend their wealth. Mm-hmm. And they see the poor as um, as a threat or as a nuisance. You know, like poor Lazarus who was lying mm-hmm. before the door of the rich man and the rich man never mm-hmm. noticed him. But can we talk about MAGA people being rich, aren't they by definition the deplorables? Aren't they all poor? You know, I'm thinking about relative deprivation and the whole concept of how we define greed and poverty and riches. MAGA people, when it, when it comes to migration, MAGA people are misguided, that's all. I don't know whether they are greedy, probably some of them are, but as far as I can tell, many of them are not rich enough to be really greedy. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, they don't have much to defend, but um, they've been told by whoever leads them um, in, in their communities and, and in their churches that... Um, that um, this is a law and order issue. Yeah, it's a law and order issue. And then it's also an issue that they simply don't understand the benefits of migration. You know, we need enough people in the country to have a thriving economy. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I remember decades ago, Cesar Chavez out in California leading what was essentially a trade unit of Hispanics that were picking and working at the big farms, the truck farms. And uh, it really was a moral issue that Christians should have a conscience about. And uh, it just seemed to me at the time, I feel the same way about, well, never mind. I, I'm going to get myself in trouble here because I'm splitting the people that listen. <laughs> you know. But, yeah, but let me just say one thing. Christians or not to have illegal immigrants picking strawberries or whatever, of course, also has an economic side. Illegal immigrants are cheap. You don't pay Social Security for them. And because they know they are in danger of being caught by the police and being deported, they take any job that they can find. And they are happy with wages that no American worker would legally accept. I know, but that's part of what irritates me is to realize that there's a huge understructure mm-hmm. economically in this country that I know doggone well Christians know about. They're aware of it. They know not to ask, you know, the uh, 
you know, the people that are coming in and putting up their drywall and their new construction, whether or not they have a green card, whether the, the sub who's doing that. And it just irritates me that we plead ignorance when it's so pervasive across America and has been for decades and decades. And so I, I guess my heart really is mostly aimed at the issue of a way forward for those who have worked for us for decades. You know, I don't mind shutting down the border and making policy decisions about how many can come in and whatever. But the idea that people have served us for decades and that they still have no hope because, well, you came in illegally, but we ate at your table. We, we had you change our sheets. We had you cut our grass. We had you, uh, you know, I mean, there's just so many jobs that they have filled. You pick our cantaloupe, you know, and that I do not believe is Christian. I am opposed to that attitude where we plead ignorance and just claim that it's, you know, a question of law. And I don't think it's just a question of law. I think when the Bible says that we should have compassion on the sojourner in our midst, mm-hmm. that that's a requirement that is not uh, subject. I remember a woman up in my church. We were talking about her earlier today. It's the same woman. I remember once saying to me, she was a county supervisor, and she said, you know, Tim, our church doesn't have any obligation to help the poor. That's what we pay our taxes for. It's welfare. And I just don't feel, think, I don't preach, I don't teach, I don't write that we can offload. To me, that's part of what Herb Schlossberg talks about, about idols for destruction in the state. You know, are we really going to offload our, our, our moral commitments to the federal government and say whatever the federal government decides is right? You know, I just don't think it's that simple, but I, I've probably dug myself deep into a hole with this whole discussion. <laughs> and so I'm sorry to all of you who are mad, but you'll be happy to know when I would say things like this from the pulpit occasionally that there were people in my church who were very, not my church, the church, who were very displeased with me. <laughs> <laughs>